to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Marcus De Silva, and the following is an excerpt from the foreword of a book entitled We Saved Sog Souls by Roger Lockshear. During the Vietnam War, far from the halls of Congress, snooping reporters, loving family members, and conventional U.S. military forces in South Vietnam, a deadly top secret war was conducted for eight years across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam by small Green Beret-led reconnaissance teams supported by fearless Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, and South Vietnamese Air Force aviators under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, or simply SOG. The Green Berets and helicopter pilots who ran those missions from 1964 to 1972 signal federal, signed federal non-disclosure agreements that prohibited them from talking to anyone outside of the SOG chain of command for 20 years about any aspect of the secret war. American aviators were told to forget you were there. The Green Berets who ran those missions carried no form of identification because the US government and the communists in North Vietnam agreed publicly to withdraw all combat troops from Laos and Cambodia. If any Green Beret was killed or captured during those missions, the US government needed plausible deniability to protect the official stated position. By 1968, the North Vietnamese army had sanctuaries with more than 25,000 troops in Laos and more than 40,000 in Cambodia from where it launched attacks across the border into South Vietnam and returned to regroup and lick their wounds as conventional forces were banned from tracking them into those countries. SOG's missions were critical to the war effort. The top secret nature of SOG missions, targets, and after action reports were approved and received by key staff at the White House and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. When the secret war ended, the government ordered all records documents when the secret war ended, the government ordered all records, documents, after action reports, and operational photographs to be destroyed. Among the secrets destroyed was documentation that SOG suffered the highest casualty rate of the war, exceeding 100% casualties, either being killed in action or wounded in action. Some Green Berets, like Sergeant First Class Robert Howard, received eight Purple Hearts for wounds in separate combat missions. In November 2021, the number of Americans still listed as missing in action from the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia was 1,584 Americans. That number includes 50 Green Berets and at least two aviators from the secret war. When the secret war Green Berets or aviators were killed in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam, their families were told, usually in the most vague language, that they died in South Vietnam. Ditto for military awards and decorations. Language on citations for SOG recipients of the Medal of Honor and other Valor Awards stated that their hero heroic actions and deeds occurred in South Vietnam, not across the fence. Other than occasional speculative newspaper articles, the veil of secrecy over SOG missions and the men who participated in them remained in place until Soldier of Fortune magazine began writing a few pieces about the secret war in the early 80s. In recent years, there have been excellent books written by SOG recon men, such as Whiskey Tango Foxtrot by Lynn Black Jr., We Few, and Whispers in the Tall Grass by Nick Brockhausen, to name a few. But there were none penned by helicopter crew members who served in the secret war supporting SOG teams on the ground. 
In other SOG books, there are many stories of teams in dire straits fighting for their lives with general mentions of the helicopter gunships armed to support troops on the ground and slicks de designated to pick up troops involved in mortal combat with relentless enemy soldiers from the North Vietnamese Army. Some named particular pilots or crew members. That was it. Thankfully, that has been corrected by helicopter crew chief Roger Lockshear, who served in the Black Angel Fire Team of the Flight Platoon and the 101st Aviation Battalion, 101st Airborne Division during the deadliest year of SOG missions, 1968. He flew supporting SOG missions from FOB-1 in Fubai, FOB-3 in Quezon, and FOB-4 in Da Nang, all based in one corps, the northern part of South Vietnam, bordered by the DMZ and North Vietnam to the north and Laos to the west. And that concludes the excerpt that was uh, written by uh, a two-time guest of, of this podcast, uh, one Mr. John Stryker-Meyer, and he appeared on episodes 13 and 17 of season three. And it is my absolute pleasure to be speaking with the author of We Saved Sog Souls, Mr. Lockshear. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. It's great to be here. It's great to be talking to you, Marcus. And I think that's the most I've read out loud in like the last month. So it's nice to read <laughs> out a little bit. <laughs> oh, you did well. You did well. I uh, appreciate it. Hopefully we'll keep it going for the rest of the way. Okay. Um, yes. So th this book, um, so I guess to back up. So I, I spoke to John a, a little while ago and, and I asked him, okay, I'm recording the new season of the podcast. Is there anybody you know who uh, could uh, come back and, and talk about um, SOG? And the, the impact that uh, when I first heard John's stories uh, as he was a guest on another podcast and then his own podcast, um, you know, the stories are just incredible. They're so hard to believe. Um, and reading several of John's books and then reading your book, uh, it, it's just incredible. So uh, I've, been, I've spent the last like four or five days just reading this thing. It's been fantastic. And I'm excited to read it again where I have a little more time to just kind of <laughs> digest it a bit. Um, but it was just great running through this book. It's absolutely incredible. You're, uh, if you're listening to this, you absolutely must get this book. Um, I am going to be going through reading some, discussing it with Roger, but we're covering a, a, a fraction of, of the book. And there's so many stories in there that we're not going to even cover that are just ridiculous. And they're so impactful. You got to go get this book. Um, but with that, uh, Roger, um, what we're going to do, the format for today, so we're going to run through this book. The, the great thing about the way that it's written, um, it is pretty much chronologically documenting your service. And so front to cover, um, it, we run right through it, discuss a lot of missions, discuss your experiences and, and the lessons that you learned. Um, but before getting into the actual uh, content of the book, just give us a little bit of context um, as to what you were doing in Vietnam in your service. So I'm very curious as well, you know, how did you end up in the army? Uh, and I'm curious as well, you grew up in Connecticut. Um, doesn't seem like a big military place, uh, unless I'm wrong. Um, and then tell us how you ended up in SOG. Well, um, first off, Connecticut is, um, believe it or not, a very large military area in go. history. Historically, anyway, we have a major sub base where they uh, build the subs, the nuclear subs here in Connecticut. Um, there are various arms factories like Colt and 
Winchester and a whole slew of others, high standard, that they're not all here today, but it, it comes from a pretty, uh, pretty well-established military supportive state. Um, yeah, back, back in, in uh, 1965 time period when uh, the war in Vietnam was starting to crank up, um, I was actually uh, working in a company with a deferment. I was working as an apprentice for a, a form of tool making. And um, some of my friends started getting drafted and um, they supposedly had deferments. Now, whether they, they actually did or not, I don't know to this day, but they, they were getting drafted. And um, I had an interest in the military uh, from a young age. And um, I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be drafted. I was, gonna, I was going to enlist and go for what I wanted to go for. And I enlisted what was then termed airborne unassigned. I was enlisting to go to special forces. And uh, that was my goal. So the recruiter, um, he, he said, okay. He said, That's, uh, this is the way we have to do it. You have to go airborne unassigned. And um, after you finish basic training and some other stuff, as he put it, um, then you know you'll have your opportunity to go to um, to go to jumps uh, to uh, Green Beret train. So I went through basic training, and uh, near the end of basic training, as we started getting our orders for our next assignment, I'm um, you know I'm figuring well I'm I'm just I'm gonna be going to jump school into uh, Green Beret qualification. Well, that didn't, it didn't work out that way. What he didn't, what the recruiter didn't tell me was that um, the military had the option of uh, sending me for whatever training they so chose that, that they felt I'd be best fit for. Uh, however, the airborne part, jump training, was still, you know, something that they had to honor if I qualified. So after basic training, I went down to uh, Alabama, to Fort Rucker, Alabama for aircraft maintenance training. And um, they have multiple schools and you progress, they take a top percentage out of each class and move them forward to the next class. Um, well, long story short, I made it through uh, all the classes that were available. Um, and it was uh, four or five months later by the time um, I was able to go to jump school. Um, during the training at, at uh, Fort Rucker, I ended up training on helicopters and um, various helicopters, but not the uh, well-known Huey helicopter. So I got my orders to go to jump school, went to jump school, and uh, right after Thanksgiving of 1966, uh, finished jump school uh, December 22nd of uh, 1966. Uh, the last few days of jump school, when it was clear that, um, you know, I was going to make it through okay, we had already started making our jumps and whatnot. I was, uh, I met with the Special Forces recruiter, and uh, he was looking at my files, and he knew what my new assignment was going to be. I didn't. Um, and he said, listen, I'm recommending that, that you hold off going to qualification said, right now, he said, um, we're needing so many people, but if you were to have a problem, 
if you had a physical injury or whatever, the likelihood of them sending you to straight to a line out for an infantry unit is very high, um, regardless of the training you've already had. Um, he, so he said, go to your next duty station. You're getting sent to the 101st Airborne. He said, it's a fantastic organization. Get some experience under your belt as a crew chief. You're going there as a crew chief, a helicopter crew chief. Get some experience under your belt then after a few months or so, uh, then apply for uh, Green Beret training for qualification. That way, if there's any issues that happen during training, um, you just get sent back to your old unit. So I said, okay, it makes sense. Well, I went to the 101st Airborne, uh, loved it. Absolutely fantastic unit. Um, I fit in there really, really well. I uh, gained rank quickly. Um, then in um, August of 1967, the division received orders that uh, we were going to Vietnam as a, as a uh, division. Um, by that time, we had received uh, some Huey helicopters, uh, some C-model helicopters, which were Huey gunships. And I was already assigned to a particular gunship that was uh, so-called so mine. Um, so um, in the beginning of December, I was told that I was going to go with a, an advance party to uh, Vietnam uh, for our unit. And I was going to go with one other crew chief, a uh, first lieutenant, and two gunships loaded onto a massive Air Force uh, C-133 cargo airplane. Um, most people know what a C-130 looks like. Uh, the C-133 is like a 130 on steroids. It's just scaled up. It was the biggest thing that the Air Force had at the time. Um, so we were able to load up the two helicopters, all the weapon systems uh, for the two helicopters, plus a Jeep and uh, myself, another crew chief and this lieutenant and off, off to Vietnam we went. So um, once we were in Vietnam, we started running operations right away. Um, before Christmas, we were already running combat missions. And um, we started working uh, different areas around, um, around Benoit. Uh, started working a few missions with some of the special forces uh, groups that were there. We did some missions with, um, with some A camps, uh, traditional A camps. And then we started running a few missions across the fence in Cambodia with this different group of uh, SF men. And uh, we were told kind of briefly and you know, uh, not focused on it that we really uh, shouldn't be talking about these missions when we get back to our unit. So we didn't, I mean, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, we, we started working more with them. Um, then when the division moved from the, that area, southern area of Vietnam, up to Camp Eagle in I-Corps. Um, by then, we had already established a solid re uh, relationship with special forces running missions, both in country with A camps and, you know, across the fence. So when we got up to I-Corps, immediately we hooked up with FOB-1 
um, out of uh, way out of Fubai, and that started the whole new venture. Um, that's when uh, we started having to sign the non-disclosures, the 20-year non-disclosures. Um, we were told that if captured, we were going to be uh, likely dealt with uh, as spies and summarily executed or, or likely tortured before executed, that we wouldn't be protected by the U.S. government. If we didn't get out immediately, we were going to be on our own. And, um, but, you know, we were young and we were um, pretty brazen in what we did. We felt very, very confident in what we did and what we did and um, how to do it. So, you know, so, yeah, not a big deal. We'll, yeah, we'll do that. So, um, so we got involved with uh, FOB1 out of Fubai. We got involved with um, the unit FOB3 out of Quezon, which very few people knew, uh, even to this day, know to this day that there were special forces operating out of, out of the Marine outpost in Quezon. So uh, I spent time at that dirt pole. Uh, that was uh, when I talk about it in the book. Um, so we, we built a, a very, very close, solid relationship with the um, recon people uh, out of CCN, Command Control North, especially out of CCN. Very close relationships. So that's, uh, that kind of brings us up to how I got involved with them. And how old were you when you went to Vietnam? I was, um, it was 1967, so I was uh, 21. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> I wasn't, the, I, I was by far the younger. I was you know, <laughs> a little on the older side. Well, it's pretty um, yeah. incredible. Yeah, but you know, at the time, it at the time, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, it's just, it's just what it is, you know. It's all relative, I suppose, right? It is, it is, sure. You're operating with people, you know, of your age, some a little older, some a little younger. Um, with the SF guys, there were there were some the same age. There were some, obviously, that were older. Um, but you know, that's just the way it was. It was just you know, that's just it. And I know, uh, again, I mentioned that we're you know we're only going to be covering a, a fraction of the book. Um, but uh, even on your trip getting to Vietnam, uh, hmm. reading the <laughs> reading the uh, the story at the the Starlight Bar in the Philippines, where it sounds like you got drugged in a bar. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's a hell of a way to start start a tour. <laughs> yeah, but we deter. Yeah, we we got drugged in in the bar, and um, just luckily this cab driver that had brought us there and dropped us off must have um, rethought what he did or, or something. I don't, I don't know. To this day, I don't know because I had never seen him again. But he, he rushed in and, and rescued us, rescued us and, and got us back to the hotel. I have no idea how because at that, at that point, um, I mean, I was blacked out. You know, I was blacked out. By the time I got in the cab, I don't remember anything until the next morning. But it was like, <laughs> this is a hell of a way to start. <laughs> well, and especially when you, you hear about the, or read about the, the missions and, um, and even a, and John's podcast with the number of guests that he had, 
the, the stories that you hear of these close calls and near just mm. nearly avoiding disaster and and of course sometimes you know disaster is sadly not avoided but it it's just like you just sort of sh- as the reader like i think it was on like page 18 or something it's like right away <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so I was going to start with uh, Christmas Day, but I think I'm actually going to start with the the eve of the Tet Offensive. Actually, you know, we'll just make a brief, we'll have a brief note about um, Christmas because what was uh, kind of comical and, and also yeah. insightful is uh, you, you get a, a Dear Santa letter from Steve Harper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll read it out just because it is, I, it made me made me smile, so I quite like it. So I'll just read this briefly. Um, so this is uh, Christmas morning. Uh, it's about 5 a.m. for you. Um, and this is 1967. Yes. Correct. Uh, so here it is. So this is uh, Dear Santa. Dear Santa, this Christmas, I have decided to ask for only one present. Since there is no snow here in South Vietnam, you can't land, so please wrap it up, and I'm sure that the Postal Department will take care of the delivery. Santa, can you imagine the joy on my face when I open your gift and find the one thing that I want most in the world, an anti-Vietnam demonstrator? At last, I'd have someone all mine to share my excitement and experiences with, and Santa, I promise I'll take special care of him. I'll give him a haircut, as they all seem to need one, but I can't promise to keep him clean because baths are pretty scarce over here. Besides, dirt seems to be a prerequisite for protesters. He should feel right at home. I'll share my bed and sometimes my inedible food with him. I'll share the disgusting disease and the impossible steaming jungle heat with him. I'll share with him the heartbreak of seeing my buddies blown apart. I'll share the misery of trying to identify the mutilated and tortured bodies that the Viet Cong have left behind. I'll let him sit beside me for hours, waist deep in the mud and water-filled foxholes. And Santa, I'll be warm with the joy of giving a little hell. As I missed the page up. I'll be warm with the joy of giving a little hell to this Christmas present you were thoughtful enough to send me. And Santa, I promise to always give him his own way for as long as he lives. Of course, that won't be long if he insists on saying the things he said in the States. The next time one of our patrols are attacked by the Viet Cong, I'll let him run to the front and tell them he loves them and wants to help them. Santa, for New Year's this year, I've decided to ask for another present. Do you think you could perhaps send all my buddies a demonstrator of their very own? Sincerely, Stephen F. Harper, 101st Aviation Battalion, 101st Airborne Division, Screaming Eagles. And so... (laughs) Before we recorded, when when we um, spoke, uh, I guess it was last week, uh, and we'll we'll cover a little bit of it as well in the epilogue. But one of the things that I I have always been very um, curious about and just never really understood. Um, well, first of all, the the cognitive dissonance between what people were seeing stateside and then the reality of of the war that was occurring. Um, it's just the, the the disconnect is just shocking. And the fact that, and as well in the epilogue, we, we talk about you have an incident at the Atlanta airport where a woman actually spits on you and calls you a baby killer. Um, meanwhile, the Viet Cong and, and the NVA ruthlessly kill everyone they come in their common path with. They don't subscribe to the same 
there's no rules of engagement. There, there's no professionalism as far as soldiering. It's quite brutal. And it's quite well documented in your book, some of those experiences as well, where you, you hear about what the enemy um, had done to even just the, the local people, farmers and people who mm. look like them, not mm. Americans, but people who look like them and the brutality that they go through, let alone the brutality that was facing the soldiers. Um, and so it's kind of funny that um, it sounds like Steve had a good sense of humor and is insightful. He did. Because it's, uh, he, he did. He yeah. did. And Steve, and Steve, um, Steve was a combat vet before I met him. Mm -hmm. He had uh, already served a tour with the 101st Airborne First Brigade. Uh, he was an infantryman, a machine gunner. Uh, Steve, I like to describe Steve as um, he was hardcore. He was a uh, hard drinking Jack Daniels kind of guy, faithful guy, the, the uh, best friend I could ever, ever have had, best partner I could ever have had. Uh, didn't bother anybody, but nobody better bothered him <laughs> at the same time because he was a low tolerance uh, kind of guy. And that was, it was interesting in the book and, and we're not gonna go into it now, but what prompted that, that letter um was uh, you know some events that took place that um it wasn't meant to but it bonded our our uh, relationship uh, very very solidly so uh yeah different people you know have a different perspective don't and and didn't realize and perhaps even today don't realize how ruthless um the north vietnamese and the Viet Cong, uh the north vietnamese were professional soldiers but there were some real atrocities committed by them as well. And it was really, really bad. But the, the uh, Western public didn't hear about those things. Didn't hear about it. And I, I'd be curious as well, um, you know, just, and I noticed that as well with like more recently, when you talk about uh, some of the combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, where just the, the details of, what happens like understanding the enemy it doesn't mm. seem to be a popular topic in in western media coverage yeah no it it, it doesn't it doesn't and uh, you know we all have different reasons why we why we think theories why we think that's the case but it certainly is the case mm -hmm. so uh we're gonna jump ahead uh and like i said i mean i'm just kind of i i got my tabs and we're just gonna i got some snippets that I want to cover and we'll just kind of go through some of these so we're uh, fast forwarding so this is January 30th um, so you're in Song Bay uh, and this is the the eve of the Tet Offensive and so you get called out um, for a and, and actually as well when you're in Song Bay you're there you're already there several days longer than you should have been you should have already rotated out but you're still right um, and you get sent out on a, I like the name of it, it's quite accurate, a people sniffer mission. So essentially you're just looking for NVA presence in the area. And just for a bit of context, so the helicopter is equipped with an XM3 device, which is a radar system that detects effluence from humans, particularly ammonia from urine and sweat. And although it wasn't 100% accurate, it was still pretty good at detecting uh, the NVA hidden in the jungle. 
And this is triple canopy as well, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, and as John described it as well, when they're on the ground and it's nighttime, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Like it's just, Correct. It, it's incredibly dense jungle. So it's obviously very helpful to have a radar detection. Um, that can be It's not actually radar. It's not actually a radar. It's, it's a sensor, a sensor device that is, it's, it's sensing, sniffing the air as it, as it would be. So it's not, not really a radar. It's not that sophisticated. <laughs> it, it was good enough. It was good enough, yeah. And yeah. it was pretty, it was pretty accurate. Um, it did, it wasn't perfect because it could detect groups of animals. Um, it would detect groups of monkeys, you know, but, um, but it would also detect presence of people. And that's where it leaves us to. So you, you go out on this mission, you're in the air. And uh, the idea was that when the presence of humans or suspected humans was detected, the radio operator would call a hotspot over the radio. And it gives everybody the idea, okay, there's, there's potentially uh, NVA presence in this area. Uh, so going to the book. From the moment the XM3 system was turned on, a hotspot was called out, immediately followed by another and another and another. The system operator suggested temporarily aborting the mission to return to the airfield to check out the XM3 since there must have been a problem with it. We flew back to the small airfield, refueled, and refueled while the XM3 was switched out with another, which only took a few minutes, and we were off again to pick up our mission right where we had left off. Again, the operator called across the radio, stating the system was being turned on and our mission was starting again. Something was very wrong. Immediately, hotspot was called, followed by another, and another, and another. A couple seconds would pass before hotspot, then another, and another. This went on for an entire hour, passing over the targeted area. The whole area was being flagged as a hotspot, but no shots were fired at us. Whatever was happening, it was not good. If the XM3 was accurate and we were not having a major malfunction with both machines, then the area was crawling with NVA, but for some reason they didn't want to engage. We completed the mission without a single shot being fired, but with maps indicating the entire area was a hotspot. The maps were covered with red dots. This did not feel right, and we all became very uncomfortable by the time we finished our mission. When we landed, the XM3 technician checked the machine again and reported that he could not find anything wrong with it. We returned to the small flight line and refueled our gunships and talked about what had just happened. We were all in agreement that this could be a very, very bad place to be if fighting erupted, but it was the eve of the Tet holiday and a ceasefire was going into place in just a few hours when midnight arrived. The locals were already starting to celebrate the holiday early, setting off small fireworks. And even though I knew it was just fireworks being set off, it still seemed like something bad was in the air. That didn't help my nerves any, and I was getting very edgy after what we had just experienced during the people sniffer. The area seemed to be packed with enemy troops just waiting for the right moment to attack us. We were all exhausted from our several day rotation, and it seemed like all hell might break loose at any moment. Finally, late in the afternoon, our relief arrived. The two gunships with two pilots, two co-pilots, and two crew chiefs and two door gunners came fresh from Benoit wearing clean clothes and looking so polished compared to us. We were so dirty that we blended right in with our dirty clothes. The drastic difference between the two sets of crews actually looked comical, and it was hard to believe that we got so filthy over the last seven or eight days. We exchanged pleasantries and brought them up to speed about what had been going on in the area. 
especially the People Sniffer mission. They said that Benoit was also starting to celebrate the upcoming Tet holiday and small firecrackers were being set off all around the area. Apparently, other than that, things were somewhat quiet back at our base camp and the remaining flight crews were anxious to see, to see us after a long stay at Song Bay. And so then you head back to Benoit, you shower, you, you have something to eat and you rest. Um, but I mean, it just, it, it feels very uncomfortable. <laughs> it does. And it did. It did. It was a very unsettling, um, very unsettling time. Um, I didn't have much faith in the ceasefire because I, I saw how it was only observed by the American or the allied troops during the Christmas ceasefire. And um, I had no reason to think that this one was going to be any different. Although, you know, everybody was being told there's going to be a ceasefire. It's going to be a ceasefire for the Tet Chinese New Year. Um, yeah, that, that night, uh, during the night, all hell broke loose as uh, the Tet Offensive uh, kicked into high gear. And um, th that was really bad. It was really, really bad. Uh, the people... The people that uh, relieved us up at Song Bay uh, got mortared and uh, several got hurt pretty bad. And uh, the ones that took our place, uh, both both helicopters were inoperable. Um, they got they, they were mortared and heavily damaged. Um, for myself and the other crews that were back at home base, uh, we ended up during the night, as soon as the rockets started and uh, explosions and mortars started, we took off um, and ran down to the flight line to our respective gunships. And um, it was a perfect scenario for, uh, defensive wise because we had these large revetments, these L-shaped bunkers that we would park the choppers in and the solid wall side of the revetments all faced the Benoit, I mean, the, um, the Benoit uh, airfield, the Air Force airfield. And the uh, insurgents um, had gotten between, they broke through uh, the Benoit airfield, did a lot of damage to the Air Force, and they were in the fields between the airfield and us. Um, and, you know, in, in looking back over it, and I do mention it in the book, I think the objective for the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese, the objective was to uh, breach the command uh, center our, where our commanding generals were. We had two commanding generals, one, one commanding general and assistant commanding general, uh, but they were both generals. Um, and they were close, the insurgents were close. They, what they didn't count on or didn't expect uh, was the resistance that we set up, the crew chiefs and door gunners set up. We had four helicopters um, on the ground, none of which went airborne, which is, which is a little strange. Um, but in, again, in the grand scheme of things, that was the perfect scenario was to keep them on the ground. Uh, so now we had eight manned M60 machine guns uh, across across a, a considerable length of 
uh, field of fire and considered distance. And uh, whenever the um, insurgents opened fire, uh, they received fire from uh, eight M60 machine guns and, a, and somewhat of a, almost a crossfire. It, it would be, you know, angled in. So uh, we were able to, we protected the flight line and I think in, in turn protected the, uh, the um, command headquarters. Um, not that we we're trying to protect them necessarily, but we were just, you know, we were there doing what we had to do. Um, there were a couple Americans lost um, during that night and the next day uh, in our area. They weren't part of our group, but they were from uh, the medical battalion that was next to us. And um, I mentioned in the book that there was a tower, a guard tower at the end of our flight line. Um, and it was there from previous residents, obviously. It wasn't ours and, and the medical battalion certainly didn't need it. Um, but they had, they would put, they put guards up there during uh, the night of the, uh, that the offensive started. And um, the insurgents, the Viet Cong picked off one of the guards. Um, and then later in the morning after daybreak, um, they, they, they shot another one. They were able to uh, get another one when he stood up and exposed himself, which was really foolish. Um, but you don't, sometimes you don't get a second chance and, and neither one of the, neither of these two did. But, um, yeah, the, the day of the Tet Offensive, I, I thought I witnessed a nuclear explosion. Um, when daybreak, uh, came around and it, it just, the air was just filled with smoke from gunpowder, from explosions. It was just filled. The smell was uh, incredible. And um, sometime during the morning, there was an explosion and the ground shook. And off in the distance, um, we could see this cloud coming up. And it was, it was a mushroom cloud. And naturally, you know, I looked at Steve, I looked at my partner and I said, oh shit, this is not good. You know, it, and it looked like a nuclear blast. Uh, it turned out it wasn't. And what it was, was the Long Bend had a big, big supply facility and ammo facility. And they, the, uh, the uh, Viet Cong had blown up, uh, got into, they breached the perimeters, they got into the ammo areas and I blew up and it was a massive explosion. Um, so uh, then, then things kind of quieted down, you know, for, uh, for the Tet Offensive, but the Tet Offensive went on uh, for weeks. It actually, it was not a one day event and it was definitely not a uh, North Vietnamese or Viet Cong victory by any stretch. Uh, the only victory they could claim is that they did attack and got into major cities all around the country, but the losses that they took, that they experienced was unbelievable. I mean, it took heavy, heavy losses um, so that was, um, that was the Tet Offensive. And with that, um, especially when I was reading that you, you guys had had the, so when the helicopters didn't take off, they were on the ground and that you had mm. eight M60s. Um, so just describe like the, the weapon, the M60 itself. Cause when I read that, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that is heavy yeah. firepower. 
It is. It's it's uh, a seven six two um, caliber or uh, um, civilian three oh eight. It's a automatic weapon. It's belt fed, um, and it's a uh, it's used by infantry um, as a uh, a squad weapon. Uh, it's very very effective, very effective, and very powerful. Um, and that's what we use for our door guns on our gunships, and we we um, use them freehand, hand hands uh, without mounts or anything else. We were just handheld. So um, we had. We had eight of them down in the flight line, two in each revetment going down the, the flight line. So it was um, heavy firepower, a, a huge amount of firepower. And it's a really heavy weapon itself too. Isn't it like a 30 pound gun? Yeah, it's about 26 pounds. Um, now with ours, we were a little lighter because the, the 26 pounds is, uh, I believe, fully uh, set up with a bipod and with a large butt stock. Um, for our usage, we, we took the, the bipod off. We didn't need it. The large butt stock, we didn't need that and, and any kind of uh, ancillary stuff uh, we didn't need. We just wanted it stripped down. Uh, so it was a few pounds less, but we weren't hauling them, you know, uh, around for hours on end. I mean, we, we when we were flying, they sat on our lap. When we were in combat, we were, you know, holding them and firing freehand. Did you guys have a nickname for the gun? Because I've heard it uh, referred to as the hog, because it sounds like a pig when you shoot it. <laughs> oh no, that's that's <laughs> that's not the M60. Oh, okay. That, okay. The <laughs> the hog <laughs> is <laughs> the hog is a type of helicopter that has a 40 millimeter cannon mounted on the nose of the Huey on the nose of the helicopter. Um, and it fires a 40 millimeter um, grenade. It's belted ammunition and um, it looks like a hog because it's got this round, this on, on the cover of my book. Oh, I have it here actually. And yeah, if you hold it up yeah. right here, right that's there. the 40 millimeter cannon. Yeah. So when you, when you look at the helicopter, it looks like like a hog and that's they call it a hog and you know different names but that's um <laughs> that's where that comes from that's not for them that's not the machine gun okay good stand me correct <laughs> yeah that's um, okay and there was one thing um I, I just wanted to back it up a touch that there was one thing that um i made a note of um as far as talking about preparation and and being battle ready and, and this paragraph here just stood out to me so this is just before uh, you get woken up um, on the, uh, I guess it was about two or three a.m. Once the uh, once the offensive started, but um, here we go. So off in the distance, I could hear the locals' uh, small firecrackers. The Tet holiday was supposed to be a peaceful time for everyone, locals, VC, NBA, and U.S. forces. I was hopeful that would be the case, but I couldn't get. I couldn't, but I couldn't get what had happened at Song Bay during the people sniffer out of my head. No matter what the higher powers were saying about the upcoming peaceful Tet holiday, my gut was telling me a different story. I was just hoping that my instincts were wrong. I asked Steve if he was feeling the same way and he confirmed that he was. He also said that he made sure that the two M60s in our gunship were clean and ready to go. 
I put a loaded magazine in my M16 and placed it alongside my bunk, along with my helmet bag, with flight helmet and 20 loaded magazines for the M16 inside it. As was my customary way of sleeping, I placed my holstered and loaded Colt 45 on my chest. It took a while for me to relax enough to fall asleep, but eventually I did. And yeah, sure enough, I mean, your instincts were, as you described, right on point, and it was uh, quite, yeah. but, and, and that's what stood out to me was just that, um, just in the back of your mind, just being battle ready, and, and not only just for that day, but what I'm curious about, and what I want to ask you about was even just in, in your training, Mm -hmm. preparation like and from listening to your podcast with with john where you you got into a, a little bit more of your training before arriving in vietnam um very extensive very thorough like it really did seem um not only just in in your guys's demeanor and your thoughts but in your actions you're prepared always to the point that you're actually sleeping you know with a weapon right on your chest uh, certainly right. that that made a difference in, in, right. your, in the success of your missions. I, I believe so. I, I, um, I think so. You, um, I, I th went under the, the guise of um, you're constantly learning, constantly training, constantly learning. Um, and you can't let your guard down. It's not an environment that you could get second chances. I mean, you might, you could be lucky. But if, if you let your guard down and um, ignored your instincts, um, that was a bad thing. I mean, you had to, you had to follow your instincts and uh, they were normally correct. And, and training, yeah, I mean, the training could never do too much training. And our, our, our training, fortunately or unfortunately, was uh, training by fire. And um, we, we would learn things every time. I mean, we'd learn things and, and we would try to, um, to really be observant of what's going on other than what we're doing and not get, not be tunnel visioned by anything because then that's also a dangerous, a dangerous thing to do when you're in combat. Uh, so, yeah, I think we, we, um, we were very successful in, in our, um, our job. And, um, and I think it's because um, we took everything very, very seriously, uh, trained hard, uh, relied on each other, didn't second guess each other, um, and also uh, were very aggressive uh, in, in combat for our situation, what we were doing um, in a gunship, a helicopter gunship, uh, you could essentially put your fist through the wall of a, of a, a helicopter. So, you know, to think you're going to stay inside and hide is a fool's way of thinking. Uh, so the way I saw it, and I started this early on with my then partner, Steve, was in a firefight, I'd go out in the skid and get an even better uh, sight on, on our targets and be able to stay on that target longer uh, because you could swing from forward and swing all the way around and back and fire down below you, behind you. Um, and many people, including John Tilt, said, 
that, that's nuts. That is crazy. So, well, you know, no, it's not. You know, I wanted to survive. And, and you know, if you sit back, if you sit back and think that, um, you know, nothing's going to happen to you in a safe place, you're, you're wrong. So um, our, our survival, I believe, was a result of being extremely aggressive regardless of what the situation was. And we would prove that over and over and over um, and get ourselves out of, uh, and get our teams on the ground, get them out of Laos um, and North Vietnam under situations that we were so overgunned and so outgunned and so overpowered that we shouldn't have, but just a sheer aggression of uh, nonstop, non, non letting up. I think, I mean, that was the key. And that was the key. I mean, we weren't trying to be bravado or anything like that. We were trying to survive. And, and we felt the key to our survival was to be more aggressive than your enemy, to get them to flinch. And, and it worked most of the time. <laughs> well, and what's, what's funny about that is it's, a pretty frequent occurrence, you know, I, I like watching uh, like NFL football and, and hockey mm. and UFC fighting. And you, you'll hear this come up, basketball, here's said very frequently by, by announcers that, you know, when a team goes up, they get a lead. Generally, then that's when they start playing defensive. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the, the other team usually gets the jump on them. And then oftentimes they win the game. And when, you know, reading all these stories and exactly how you said it, that default aggressive, like we're going to go out on the skids, which I know you, you just kind of threw it out there sort of nonchalantly. That is wild. <laughs> like just the fact that you can override that instinct in you where you're inside of a helicopter, which, as you say, is essentially not really going to provide <laughs> you any cover. Bullets are going to go right through it. Yeah. Um, which as a civilian, I, I genuinely did not know until I read this book. And I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, because you would think helicopters, is, you know, it's made out of hard materials. I don't know, like bullets <laughs> are going to not go, but, you know, bullets go through there with, with ease. And the fact that you guys were going to go out on the skids, that's our best point of attack, full field of vision, and we're just going to lay it down. And, and that's the key to the success. So it's, it's amazing to, to override that and, and just, mm. just, okay, we're going to go for this. If we're, if we're here to fight, we're going to fight. And yeah. sure enough, you know, it proved to be the right way, it seemed. And it was effective. It was effective. Now, just to be, to be clear, the pilot and co-pilot, their seats were armor-plated. Uh, they were protected on the side, just short little wings on the side. The back was fully armor-protected, and the seat itself was but um our seats were canvas <laughs> so so we used body armor we we had body armor that were there was short there were plates uh there were ceramic and and kevlar uh woven uh plates that for the front and the back they were heavy um they were awkward uncomfortable but that's what we had and we would take a back plate an extra back plate and sit on it so uh, we generated our, our own protection while, while we're in the helicopter anyway. <laughs> and that was uh, proven to be effective as well, because there, yes. there were instances, and, and you also 
talk about a team that you run into. I don't remember when, um, but you mentioned to them, oh yeah, put the back plate on the seat. You sit on the seat and that protects you at least from being shot from underneath. And the other team actually said, oh, well, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's yeah. like uncomfortable. <laughs> it's going to save your life. Yeah, I know. I, unbelievable. I mean, you know, um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how, <laughs> how you explain that out, you know, um, unless, I mean, my, my only, my only explanation in my mind is that um, those folks weren't seeing much combat. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's a reality. I mean, it, that could be. Uh, because if if you are seeing a lot of combat, you, you want every edge you can get, you know. Um, and the other one was with the ballistic helmet when we were issued ballistic helmets. They were very uncomfortable and hard to get used to, um, and it actually hurt. You know, they were just uncomfortable. But um, you know, again, that saved my life. Mm -hmm. And we, I had I had run into crew members, not from our unit, because it was mandatory in our unit, uh, not by upper upper uh, echelon, but by the crews themselves. And I, I had gone, run into uh, crews that say, oh, no, 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 they're, they're too uncomfortable and they hurt my ears and <laughs> it's okay. All right, but you know, I'm wearing them. And so, I like what you say in the book, you, you go, my, I figured my head was worth protecting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you kind of right. It's a no-brainer. It's a good call, I'd say. It is a good call. Yeah. But we're we're coming to that as well. Um, there was one thing I wanted to mention as well uh, before moving on to a, a different portion of the book here. But you talk about sort of the the um, atmosphere of the villagers after the Tet Offensive, and you you chronicle you you have some interactions with like the women and children. Um, there's a vendor that you're not a fan of, and hopefully we, we get to that story. Um, but overall, you know, friendly enough with the village mm -hmm. prior to the event, after the Tet Offensive, you know, you describe it just seems a bit different. Uh, the villagers more guarded, more serious, uh, not making eye contact. Um, and then uh, what absolutely shocked me, um, you have an incident with... Um, you're out on a break with uh, Scott, is it DeArmond? DeArmond? Yeah, yeah. And uh, a grenade gets left on your truck by a bunch of kids. Yeah. Take us through that. Well, um, as I mentioned that um, prior, prior to the Tet Offensive, it was common for villagers, villagers being Vietnamese villagers, um, uh, coming through, coming through our area, we had a very uh, low security area where we were in in Sombay. This is Sombay, and um, you know, there's villagers walking in and out the area constantly all day, um, and and the women frequently would come through and they would have these baskets, woven baskets that they carry on their arm, and they would sell bananas. We'd buy bananas from them or some fruit and whatnot. Um, but after Tet, it was it was different. They um, the village people, the Vietnamese village people, were um, like I said, they they wouldn't look you in the eye. They, we noticed, and all of a sudden, my the red flags in my brain start start going off that something's not right here. Um, the Montagnard people, 
never changed. They were, they were friendly, always smiling. Um, you know, that, that never changed, but the, the Vietnamese village people changed. It was changed. Um, so on one occasion, um, one of the women was, was coming through and uh, she had her basket and the basket looked heavy to me. And I got up and I went walking over and again, she's trying to avoid any contact with me. And I yelled, called to her and she didn't want to stop. She stopped. I went over and I lifted the, the um, towel like off the, the bottom of the basket. And here she was stealing warheads from our rockets. <laughs> so now we knew to be extra guarded that they were something was going on then we checked the kids a day or two later there were kids come and they were trying to like get past our area quickly and we stopped these kids and one of the kids we pulled his shirt up and he had m60 um belted ammo wrapped around his wrapped around his body uh, so, you know, we knew what was going on and this is, this is not a good situation. Then, um, we were taking, not, taking a break. We we're in between missions. Our, uh, we refueled our two gunships. Um, Scott DeArmond, who later became my partner at the time, he was with first brigade of the 101st airborne. He was, uh, running the supply truck, the supply ammo truck. Uh, he, he came up with his load of rockets and, and uh, machine gun ammo, and um, he came over, and we were just, he didn't unload it yet. It was, it was no rush. We were already loaded. We were all set. Um, he came over, and we were just shooting the breeze, and a group of kids came over to us, um, you know, a small group, maybe six or eight kids, and they're fooling around with us. Um, just you know, acting like little kids. I mean, young kids are all under, say, under 10 years old or so. And as they're doing that, I'm, I'm looking over at the two and a half ton truck that's loaded with ammunition and rockets. And there's kids over there. And Scott glanced over and he picked up on something and he, he just said, whoa, whoa. And he took off running over towards the truck, which is only a few yards away from us, maybe not even 50 yards. And as he took off running, the kids that were by the truck took off running opposite and away. The kids that were um, around us took off running. When Scott got over to the truck, he's looking around the truck and he noticed that the cap for the, the fuel tank on the truck, there are the caps on a chain. The cap was hanging down. And he looked in and here's in, in the, the fuel filler cap, there's a, a, a funnel shaped screen, removable screen. Um, and here's a hand grenade sitting in it wrapped with uh, tape on the pin pulled. So the spoon was wrapped with tape and he saw it in a yell grenade and he, he, he pulled it out. He threw it. Um, when he threw it, I grabbed my M16 and I took a sight on the kids are running away. And I thought this, this isn't going to look good. You know, 
So uh, I put it down, and from that day on, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't let any of the the kids or the villagers anywhere near us. Had we not realized what was going on, and had that cap been put back on, um, that thing would have exploded and would have taken all of us out. Plus. Uh, plus the choppers, everything else. It, it would have been, it would have been really, really bad. So um, you know, um, your instincts. You pay attention to your instincts when something doesn't feel right, and and that was an example of, um, you know, little kids can kill you too. And that must be like like when you read that moment. Um, my feeling it was uh, I felt very deflated because it's like you read this and yeah. you. Know, Oh, man, even the kids are trying to kill you now. Like, yeah. it, like you know, it's, it's humor in it, I guess, but it's it's devastating. And it was because before Tat, um, the kids would come around and we they we'd fool around with the kids and we'd give them candy and we'd um, whatever we had we would give them. Um, and the same with you know the women, we would buy some fruit. We figure we'll we'll help them out a little bit, you know. Um, but it, and that was the feeling. It was very, very depressing and deflating to think that, you know, even the kids, it, it, you can't trust anybody, you know. So, um, but then again, that helped keep us alive and keeping us alert. So it was a lesson and it was a lesson learned. So, and that carried with me. Mm -hmm. And, um, Jumping ahead a little bit, um, where are we? February, yes, February 1968, um, or pardon me, March, nope, February. Um, so you guys, just a, a story about Bill Whitaker. I just, uh, that was a really cool story. So I just wanna go through that. But the context of this um, story, you guys go out on a mission, uh, allegedly heading to a friendly village where a, a firefight broke out with ground forces. You fly over, you engage, you do several gun runs, um, but you guys uh, take he pretty heavy fire. So you have to, after your gun runs, uh, you manage to make it back. Um, you make a hard but safe landing. Uh, you jump out of the helicopter. You see that there's uh, 36 bullet holes. Um, severe damage to the fuel cells, the rotator, uh, or the rotor, pardon me. Um, so it was, uh, you know, you guys got out at a, at a good time. And as you guys are back at base, the, the, the CH-47, yep. so they're bringing back, I guess, the wounded soldiers on the ground? No, they're, they're, um, they're collecting the wounded okay. to bring to a field hospital. So the Huey uh, dustoffs, our uh, medevacs, are bringing them to our, our small airstrip and uh, unloading the wounded and the dead. Okay. And yeah. Thank you for the correction. Um, so yeah, so just fast forwarding to this little, this little snippet here. So when a dustoff arrived, we would unload the wounded. And when the dustoff left to retrieve more casualties, we would move the wounded to the designated area where they were triaged. Some of the wounded could walk and we would help them walk to a waiting area. Some were more seriously wounded and we would move them to where Mr. Whitaker and the other medics could address their wounds. And uh, Mr. Whitaker was, uh, he was a medic himself. 
uh, he was a special forces uh, medic. He was he spent 12 years in the special forces as a medic uh, before becoming going to flight school and becoming a pilot. And so after about an hour or so of doing this triage work, uh, one of the soldiers that you took off of the dust off was already classified as KIA, killed in action. Uh, Steve and I were carrying the stretcher with his body to place it with the others that had died when something about him caught Mr. Whitaker's eye. He stopped us and told us to put the stretcher down so he could examine the soldier. He said, I don't think he is dead. And he started doing CPR and insisted that the soldier be put on the Chinook that was preparing to take off and deliver its load of wounded to the field hospital. Mr. Whitaker stayed with the soldiers. Steve and I loaded his stretcher into the CH-47 and we could see him working on the soldier as the big helicopter lifted off and began its flight to the field hospital. I asked Bill what made him react to the man who was considered dead. He said he was not sure, but something inside him told him to help that man. Maybe years of being an SF medic made something about the soldier click within himself to act, but he just wasn't sure. For certain, Bill should have received an award, perhaps the soldier's medal for what he did that day, but he didn't. It was just another day in combat. That, that seems to be the, I know John likes to say, it's just another day in SOG, you know, and that's yeah seems to be appropriate here. Like the soldiers considered KIA, there's no reason to be paying attention to him. He's, you know, right. he's, he's just another body. We have to move him to where he is. And, and again, instinct. Just instinct. Incredible. instinct. And he couldn't explain it himself. And, and here, here's a fellow that um, was a, alive um, and would never know the story behind you know, his being taken care of, you know, it just, uh, Bill Whitaker was an uh, uh, unsung hero that day. I mean, he really, really was. He just, he just, it clicked. He went into action and wouldn't, wouldn't give up, wouldn't give up on him. And he saved that man's life. And, and to think as well that it just goes just another day, you know, no yeah. awards, no medals. It's just, no, just another day. Just another day, yeah. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, we're jumping ahead quite a bit of the way through. It's about 100 pages from, from that last story. Um, so you have a chapter here, uh, chapter 14. And there's actually quite a, a funny little note in the dedication page. Um, <laughs> your grandson helped proofread it, taught, taught you the difference between venomous and poisonous. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> He's a good proofreader. He did his job well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in, in regards to this uh, chapter, it's called Snakes, Animals, and Other Things of Concern, which also makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> and so it's... it's uh, and even the snake stories as well, because it sounds like there's quite a few. Um, there's quite a, there's a couple quite humorous uh, stories with snakes and uh, scaring uh, guys in the unit. And sort of reminded me of like Indiana Jones, where he just freaks out, you know, yeah. kind of comical. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, so you're, so you're, you know, you're reading this chapter and it's like, okay, bugs, uh, snakes, okay. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> um, you get hit with uh, with this story, um, kind of near the, the the last page of of the chapter. Um, so kind of uh, just fast forwarding here. 
So on another occasion, a team noticed that they were being followed after they had been on the ground in Laos for a few days. Naturally, they thought NBA trackers had located them and would close in on the small team at an appropriate moment. The team set up a defensive position on the edge of a clearing that was about 100 yards wide and had grass about three feet high. The team waited silently in ambush, and after several, several minutes, they heard a faint noise on the opposite side of the clearing. Suddenly, a figure appeared that was visible from just the shoulders up, but it wasn't an NVA tracker. They described what they saw as a humanoid, ape-like creature that was covered in light brown hair or fur, except for the face. After a few moments of just staring at each other, the team 1-0, the team leader, lifted his arm and waved it back and forth. Looking back from across the field, the creature lifted his hairy arm and mimicked the waving motion. For a few more minutes, each side just looked at each other. Then the creature walked away into the thick jungle and was not seen again during the time the team was on the ground. It seems that none of these creatures had have been delivered to mainstream media or anthropologists, but nonetheless, there had been multiple sightings by many different soldiers throughout the years that our soldiers were in Southeast Asia and over the ages in the cultures of the indigenous peoples of the region. Even the North Vietnamese government and NVA soldiers reported encounters with strange creatures during the Vietnam War. The descriptions given by NVA soldiers were very similar to those reported by US soldiers. Each side described the creatures as being between five and six feet tall, powerful, powerfully built and walking on two legs. In 1974, a North Vietnamese general sent an expedition into Laos in search of the creatures, but supposedly found only footprints and nothing else. My own experience of seeing something strange in these trees happened during the summer of 1968 while flying in the remote area of the Annamite Mountains just north of the northern end of the Ashaw Valley. We were flying low level just above the treetops along the crest of the mountains when something moving in the trees caught my eye. At first I thought it was an NBA spotter, so we quickly circled back to get another look. All the while, I watched it moving quickly down from the tree. By the time we were able to circle back, it had moved out of sight. What I was able to see appeared to be a human size, appeared to be human-sized, and I had clearly seen its arms and legs. I hadn't seen a tail, and what I saw looked to be light brown or tan-like in color, similar to an NVA uniform. We circled the area several times, but could not find it or even draw fire from any NVA that may have been there. That seemed odd, because in this area, the NVA were always quick to engage in a firefight. The image I saw in those brief moments always seemed strange to me, and at the time, I thought it might have been a large ape. I didn't know at the time that there were no, no large apes in that part of the world. Um, and there's another story as well, just before this, that talks about a team that they hunker down in a cave. They think that it's, uh, they're, they're being harassed by an NVA team, but it's at, it's at night, so they can't see anything. And I guess the, the radio, there's a cable from the radio, and the one zero set up, gun drawn, because something was pulling or someone was pulling on this cable. And it went on for several hours, and then they wake up the following morning, they see feces and a big, uh, like matted, the grass was matted um, and stomped down from where it looked like something was sleeping. Um, yeah, so it's just like, you know, you're reading, okay, Vietnam, okay, yeah, we know what's happening, helicopters, sog, and then, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah, rock apes. They're, they're, they're called rock apes by the indigenous people. Um, for the indigenous people, 
um, the mountain people and the brew. Um, this is in this is a part of their their culture and part of their history. They they think nothing of it when when they would be asked about it. They would just yeah you know they they live in the forest, they live in the woods, um, and they got their name rock apes um, supposedly because uh, of encounters that indigenous people had with them um, that they would start these creatures would start throwing sticks and rocks um, at, at the people that they encountered. And they were, they were known, supposedly known for that, for throwing in large rocks and stones and, and things. And it was very common in, in, their, uh, in their culture. So, um, but you, you don't hear much about them. About them. Um, the, the incident that you're referring to um, about um, the team being held up in the cave um, is a really funny, funny story to, to listen to the, the person who was involved. That's um, a, a good friend, Tim Schaff. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, to hear him to hear him tell the story. And when um, when he had told the story to me and uh, one of his teammates, at the time, uh, he, he's since passed away, but a uh, John Smith, Smitty, um, <laughs> confirmed everything that was going on. And they said that there were, they could hear multiple, they could hear more than, than just one. They could hear, I mean, they were sure there were trackers. Um, and then they, in the morning, um, they found several bed down air, areas that something was had bedded down over the night and slipped away before, before dawn. But the cave that they were in um, may have been the um, sleeping place of, of one or more of these creatures because uh, Tim and Smitty uh, had said, it stunk awful. It had the nastiest, nastiest smell in the cave. But they figured that would be a good place anyway, because you know who's going to go in there. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's what happened during the night. That that whatever it was kept pulling on, on the uh, the phone wire, um, just gently, just gently pulling on it, and just not tugging, but just gently pull. And Tim almost uh, shot whatever was there, but thought twice. He he knew that if that if he'd fired a shot, then their, their cover is blown, you know, for sure. So, yeah, there's, there's some good stories about those. <laughs> well, I can just imagine, too, you're trying to avoid, you know, being tracked by the NVA, which they're very good at, and it's very difficult. Yeah. And now you got rock apes, too. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but the rock apes right. didn't hurt anybody. <laughs> which is good. Yes, that part worked out okay. Um, now, chapter 15, you know, I, I think that was my, I think that's my favorite chapter of the book. Um, so you, you befriend a, uh, an individual by the name of Dow, and um, despite the, the bit of a tragic ending to the chapter, um, I really did enjoy that. It was uh, quite a, um, uh, quite a, a, an uplifting break. Um, from a, a lot of the the real uh, seriousness of, of the stories um, leading up to that. Um, 
so yeah, so rather than you know read something, I, I just like to hear you talk about them a little bit. So so just tell us about. Okay, sure. Dow um, brings a smile to my face just thinking about him. He to me and for me, he was um, he was like the the most calming for my soul. Um, I first first met Dow. Um, in Mylock, up at Mylock, when when uh, we opened the camp there, um, this SF camp running uh, mission recons, and Dow was a brew elder. Um, when I first met him, I didn't know who he was, what he was. Uh, he came walking up to where we had our two gunships with two of his buddies, and when he he came up, I noticed that. You know, he, he must have been the leader of the group because the other two were kind of just a little bit behind him, almost aside, alongside, but just a little behind. And um, he came up and they, they just squatted down where, where they, they squat down and their butts just about touched the ground. They could sit that way, squat that way for hours. And he was watching us. So, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I didn't see him as a threat or anything. But, um, but I was curious. So I, I said to, uh, to Steve, my partner, I say, Steve, I said, I'm going to take a walk over. You, you stay here. I'm going to walk over. And, uh, so I went walking over to where the three were. And um, to kind of make a long story short, we, we started to get a conversation going, if you will. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> he didn't speak English and I didn't speak brew. Um, but I, I got out of him, his name was, and I'm, I'm saying Dao, uh, that's the only name that comes to mind over all these years. Um, and I think that was his name. And, but anyway, um, I got from him that his name was Dao. And, um, and, and I, I told him my name was, you know, they called me chief at the time, the crew chief, chief. And so we got that going and so every time we would um, we would come up to my lock from Camp Eagle and set down our two gunships, within minutes, here would come Dow and his two buddies. So um, we ended up uh, getting quite a, a good friendship going. I would bring I would always bring him something for him and his friends. I learned quickly that um, that they shared everything. They shared if. If, uh, if I were to give him a can of soda, uh, a Coke or a Pepsi or whatever, um, he would take a sip, pass it to his buddies and, you know, they would share. So I knew that I needed to bring something for, for everybody or none, or none at all, you know. So um, one day, uh, Dow came up and um, he had a crossbow that he made. And he gifted it to me, um, and and I didn't I didn't know how, know how to react. I mean, I I couldn't. This thing is to, I still have it to this day. It's totally handmade. It's incredible craftsmanship, and they don't have any any modern tools. Um, so then um, a little later on. He gifted me a, a small pipe, a real small, small pipe, little bowl, uh, the stem 
um, had three brass rings that somehow he, he cut a cartridge, a bullet cartridge, and shaped it to fit on the stem. Um, and a little tiny hole through the stem, the stem is probably three inches long, with the tiniest hole. It's like a little, like a sixteenth diameter hole. I don't know how the hell he got it through in there. <laughs> I've since learned that they probably used a piece of wire that he kept heating up and just gently heat it up and push it through. Anyway, um, Dow, Dow and I got to be very, very close. Um, one day, and the funny, this is probably where uh, we're leading. One day, um, when we came up there, um, I didn't have anything. I didn't bring anything. Dow came up, up to the flight line. Um, I had tried numerous times to get him to sit in the helicopter, just to sit on the floor. And then he, I couldn't get him to do it. He wouldn't do it. The best I could get him to do was we got him to sit underneath or to squat underneath the tail boom and we would I would sit on the ground and we would just sit there and and point at the birds and you know uh, just spend silent time together anyway um, I didn't have anything to, to give him and and I realized that I had a chocolate bar in my pocket a tropical bar and they're these little these little like a Hershey bar that they don't melt in the heat. I don't know what made out of, but who knows? Made by chemistry, I guess. But um, so I, I thought, I, oh, I had that. So I took it out and I unwrapped it and I went to give it to Dow and, and he pushed, he pushed it back, he pushed my hand back and he, and he was pointing to me from, you know, me first. <laughs> so I, I bit off a piece and I handed it to him. And he, he, he smiled and he put the thing in his gummed mouth and most of his teeth were gone and, and they, 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 they chew on this binong, this beetle knot and it, it, red, it, it red stains their lips and they're like blood red. And he's gnawing on this thing for a minute or two trying to get a piece off and it's all wet and gooey. He finally got a piece off and he handed it back to me. <laughs> And I thought, oh shit, <laughs> what am I going to do now? And and he was intently looking at me like he couldn't, you know, didn't understand. So I thought, oh well, what's the worst that could happen? So I took the remaining soggy, wet piece and popped it in my mouth, and he beamed. He had the the biggest smile on his face. So that was that was Dow. Uh, he in his early days was a warrior. Uh, I was told he was a fierce, fierce warrior. Um, and also told, was told that his era, his tribe, his people, they were headhunters. And they were also were known to be cannibalistic. Um, so this is a, this is a, this is a serious character, but um, he was the nicest man, the nicest man I may have ever known. Uh, and, and I really, I really miss his friendship, but that was, that was Dow. And there's, there's a lot more, you know, in the book about, about Dow, but yeah. And what was interesting is in that chapter. So yeah, just as you said, he was uh, quite, quite a warrior in his day. Um, and sort of you, you, it's sort of, I guess about middle chapter where you say that 
But it was kind of funny because as I was reading it in the back of my mind, because um, you also mentioned that when you saw him, yeah, he looked a bit older and, and, and yeah. just looked like he was sort of leading these other two men and uh, that he had tribal tattoos. And it was funny. Yes. As soon as I heard that or read that, I, I figured I'm like, oh, I bet you, you know, oh. and, and then I figured as well, the fact that the two of you hit it off so well, so quickly, I'm like, yeah, this guy, this guy's done some things in his day. Oh, yeah. I feel it you know yeah yeah and 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 you knew it he had he had this this he had this air about him at least what i could feel the way i felt it he had this this uh dignified quiet um serious friendly um he, he had this aura about him that it was just i i just found admirable i, I just um i i felt so honored that uh, that he befriended me and like i say i had i had learned later that he was he was a very very high status of their their village the local villages and um and and was known to have been a fierce warrior <laughs> and it's, it's interesting as well like when you when you think about because i guess at that point in the book um i guess it's a it's about halfway, touch over halfway. And so you have all these experiences and, and, you know, even on this podcast already, we've been talking about instinct and, and how that played such a huge role in, mm. in keeping you guys alive and, and keeping you guys in the fight. Um, but kind of related to that, it's interesting when you can just sort of recognize, uh, like you say, there's just an aura, there's just this energy about him where yeah. palpable. So it's interesting. Very, it's spiritual. It you know, like on a spiritual level, it just it's just very different. Very different. Um, there's a. I just want to be sure we we get through um, an, enough of the things. That, like I said before we record, I'm like, okay, I got my notes. I, I feel like <laughs> okay. So making on the fly adjustments uh, just <laughs> for the for the sake of time. Um, but I, I want to touch on this uh, just because it, it really, uh, as the reader, um, really stops you, um, really stops you quite hard um, when you get to this point in the book. Um, so quickly, I just want to read uh, another poem uh, that was written by uh, Steve Harper on Christmas Eve and uh, which he gave to you on Christmas Day in 1967. Um, so here we go. Uh, it's entitled, Why Worry? There are only two reasons to worry. You succeed or you don't. If you succeed, fine. If not, there are two possibilities. Your health is good or bad. If good, great. If not, there are two more possibilities. You will get well or you will die. If you get well, why worry? If you are about to die, there are even two more possibilities. You will go to heaven or you will go to hell. If you go to heaven, what more do you want? If you go to hell, you'll be so busy shaking hands and greeting old friends who are as pessimistic as you were in life that you will forget about worrying altogether. And I just quite like that one. That's a, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, There's it's a lot of <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's real good. And at this point in the book, um, so you you go on an R&R, &R, um, rest and recovery? Yes. And, and so you, you originally go in or you uh, make the application, I suppose, uh, for Australia. Uh, right. It ends up being Hong Kong. So you, you go, um, you return. And when you come back, uh, you run into Steve. 
and he's banged up, his, his face is cut up, scabbed, and um, you, you, know, you ask him what happened, and, and he said that, I guess it was the day after you, you left, they were um, right. uh, crashed. Right. Shot down, I suppose. Right. And so you're about to go back out that night uh, when you, I guess, just tired from being in Hong Kong and, and the traveling. Um, so, uh, and pardon me, it was Dave Emon, Emmond? Yes, Emon, yeah. And so he takes your place and um, the pilot on the, on the mission was W01 Levi Reynolds and the co-pilot was W01 Walter Skip O'Neill. Uh, this was the first time that the three men flew together since being shot down. Interesting though, just like Dave was filling in for me, Levi Reynolds was filling in for W02 Tom Woods who was getting ready to go on R&R the next day. And um, this is July 4th as well? Yes. And, and uh, 1968. And so they, they go out on mission and you're back at base and you're approached by uh, First Sergeant Top and he came to you and um, you could tell by the look on his face that something was very wrong. He said to me, Chief, your ship went down and there are no survivors. I couldn't believe what he was saying. They had just left on a typical firefly. How could it be true? Top leaned toward me and put his hands on both my shoulders and said, I'm sorry, Chief, I'm really sorry. My knees felt weak and I needed to sit down and process what was happening. I sat down, put my head in my hands and started crying uncontrollably. My best friend and partner had just been killed and my very good friend had died because I had asked him to take the flight for me. At some point, I picked my head up and looked over at the division HDQ area and the festivities that were still continuing like a party in the park. Four men had just given up their lives and, it, and here a few miles away from the crash site, there was a party going on. My head was spinning with anger, sadness, confusion, guilt, and every other emotion that could be thrown into the mix. I felt it felt like my world was crashing down and part of me was being ripped out of my body. More anger and more guilt were coming into my body and I felt like I was about to explode. I drank a couple more beers and for the rest of the night, I stayed awake asking myself over and over, why? Why did Dave have to die just because I had asked him to take my place? Why did he stop, turn around and look at, and look at me the way he did and then just nod and leave the tent? What did he feel and know? Why did Steve say the things he said? Things that he never, ever said before. What was he feeling in that moment? What did he know? And um, so rather than me read uh, that part, um, what was it that Steve said to you right before he left on, on mission? Well, Harper, Steve was... Um... He, he felt invincible. He, he would say many times, uh, there's not a gook in this world that's, uh, that can kill me. He hasn't been born yet. I, he would say, that was, I mean, it was just common. He would say that, uh, you know, no matter how bad the missions were going to be, he would say, don't worry, chief, you know, not today and stuff like that. Um, uh, that day, now Steve's 
bunk was right next to mine. We, we slept right alongside each other. And he got up and uh, he looked down at me and he said, well, chief, I guess if I'm going to die, I guess I might as well die on my own ship. That was it. And, uh, you know, he'd never, ever, ever said anything, anything remotely like that. I don't know what he was thinking or feeling. Uh, Dave, when Dave got up, um, Dave was two bunks to the to the uh, right of mine. Steve was on my left. Dave was two bunks to my right. Dave got up. He was close to the door. And normally, you know, he would just get up and walk out the door. He got up. He got to the door. He stopped and he turned around. He was just looking at me and he, he nodded his head. And off he went. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, and still is, it's a tough time. And I don't know, don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. And, and when you're reading that, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because you, you can kind of feel a bit of the, a bit of the tension building. There's a couple close calls and you can just sort of feel it. And even you described like, there's just, it seemed like there's just a bit of a shift and the energy um, at that time. And it just, you know, things didn't seem to be going, just sort of that impending doom. And, uh, and then obviously for, for both of those men to um, uh, act in a way that was out of character and then the result um, is, is shocking. And it, it's, it's shocking to read it, let alone it's it's impossible to, you know me sitting here uh to even understand what that would feel like but just the the overwhelming i mean as you said it was just it felt like you're about to burst i mean that that seems yeah. right like just that how do you even process that when it's so sudden mm. yeah i mean i i don't know i mean you you go on you you know there's uh you know there's the next mission you know you've got to you've got a job to do and you've got to, you know, you've got to be on your game. Otherwise, you know, you're not only going to put yourself at risk, but you put the rest of your crew at risk if if you're not up to speed, you know, if you're not on your game. But it was very hard to process. I don't know if I've ever fully processed it. You know, the 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 wonder. Um, the the same three out of those four people were the ones that crashed the day after I went on R and R. It was the same crew, uh, except for Steve, uh, except for uh, Dave Eamon. Um, our platoon sergeant, Sherman Johnson, took my spot that night. He ended up with a broken leg. When I got back from Hong Kong, he had a, he had a cast from his hip down to his ankle. Um, otherwise, he would have probably been on that, that flight. So, I mean, you know, things that you, you just don't know. Um, I know that um, for Dave, um, I think Dave was destined for a short life. Um, he, when we were in the States, um, not long before we went over to Vietnam, he uh, was in a car that had a severe accident. He got hurt really bad, lost his spleen. Um, he, he, was, he was a handsome kid, a handsome guy. He ended up with a nasty scar diagonal scar across his forehead and one deep 
thick scar down his cheek. Um, he nearly got killed in the States. I think, you know, um, maybe he was just de destined for a short life, but that doesn't, it just still doesn't explain the, the, you know, what was going through his mind and what was going through Steve's mind, you know. So, uh, yeah, and you go by your instincts. I mean, your instincts, there's something um, about combat that puts you in a different, puts your mind in a different place. Your, your senses are so keen. Um, your, your instincts are so, are so keen and alert. It's very, very, it's different. It's really hard to put into words. Um, I know in, in the book, there's, there's a place in the book where I talk about everything seemed to be moving in slow motion. Um, you, your mind goes in a different place and you operate on a different, a different level. So. And I'm curious as well, you know, obviously, you know, reading that portion of the book, you, you know, the emotion behind it is so prevalent and, and in your voice now it's, it's apparent as well. But what was it like in the act of writing the book when it came to that portion? Um, just, you know, so many years later, what, what was that like for you to, to write that? Well, I think, I think it was, it was healing. As as a lot of the book was, I think it, I think it was a healing experience to put down on paper my thoughts and my feelings, you know, uh, to put them down. It was like it was it was like releasing, you know, some of that uh, that built up that pent up feeling. Um, so I, I think um, I won't say it was hard. Um, it was it was in, it was intense. But it, I don't think it was hard. It was very, very focused. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, there were there were many times when I was writing the book that I would just I would just get in a zone, and hours would go by, and um, and and that chapter I think was one uh, where it just you know just time time was just going by. So. Um, I think it was like most of the book or all of the book it was a healing. It was healing for me to do that because it's hard. Um, it's hard to communicate to someone, you know, um, these things. Um, you're never in the right environment, you know. Uh, so to write it down, yeah, that was that was uh, it was healing. It was it was releasing. And so with that. We're coming to sort of near near the end um, of, of the episode for today. But before getting to that, uh, we have one very important piece to cover, uh, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I guess, it's two chapters, uh, chapter 19 and 20, uh, chapter 19 uh, called or entitled The Mission, and then chapter 20, The Miracle at 8,000 Feet. And when you read, so, you know, when, before I, basically just ask you to kind of walk us through through those series of events when you're reading it it's it's very um not necessarily hard to believe but it, it's just like you you scratch your head so many times going how mm. are they still going <laughs> how yeah. how are how are they still how are they not dead essentially it's just mm. unbelievable and and calling it 
the miracle at 8,000 feet. That was one of them. Uh, but there was about a dozen and, right. and, and true definition of miracle. Like that's not understating it. It really is as, as shocking as that. Um, so with that introduction, uh, <laughs> tell us about the mission. Marcus, um, I don't know if, if we have time. <laughs> Are no, we going to continue? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, because I, I think those two chapters are an evening in itself, because even within the, within the chapters, um, there's so much, there's so much uh, going on and that could be talked about. Um, as I mentioned, and, and John Meyer Tilt, he will, he will back this up. Um, those that are familiar with the, with the mission, that particular mission, have no other explanation than uh, divine intervention on many, many accounts um, all along the way uh, on that thing. There were just so many things. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think, I, I really think that we could do a show on those, on that, on that too. And then, and then, you know, the closure, because the book, even though it's chronological, it also after I was finished, realized that it kind of builds towards those chapters. Um, and it wasn't meant that way. It's just the way things rolled out and uh, the way, you know, history went. Well, you just made my evening because absolutely, we'll do it as another show. That would be fantastic. Okay. Let's do yeah, that. that would be great. I think we could do it justice. Otherwise, um, it would be hard to do it in, in, you know, a half hour or whatever. Of course. No, absolutely. I think that's fantastic. So what we'll do is we'll we'll stick a to be continued on the okay. end of this episode, that, and that uh, works. we'll we'll that pick works. up uh, on on chapters nineteen and twenty um, on the next episode, and then I guess we'll we'll since there's a little bit after that as well, uh, we'll cover the the remainder of the book. Um, sure. On that show, so let's do that then. Yeah, because there's a couple of very very um, interesting missions after that as well. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to do right. that. And um, for tonight, then, uh, I just want to say uh, such a privilege. Uh, I, I love doing these. These are just, they're, they're so, they bring me a lot of joy um, mm. to, to do these podcasts. Um, it's an absolute privilege um, to speak with you. And reading this book, I had a lot of fun um, going through it. And it's just, is you can't, I didn't put it down. I, I just, you know, burned through it real quick. Yeah. Um, it was just so, so enjoyable. And thank you so much for your time for tonight. And You're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to take more of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we can, we can do that. We, <laughs> I've enjoyed it. It's been, it's been very enjoyable for me. Great. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs>